Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis, the 50th chapter, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers realized that their father was now dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and wants to pay us back seriously for all the terrible things we did to him? So they approached Joseph Joseph and said, Your father gave orders before he died, telling us, This is what you should say to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's sins and misdeeds, for they did terrible things to you. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of your father's God. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers wept too. They fell down in front of him. And they said, we're here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I God? You planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it. In order to save the lives of many people, just as he's doing today. Now, don't be afraid. Take care of, I will take care of your children. So he put them at ease and spoke reassuringly to them. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Be to God. Last week, as we concluded worship, I promised that we were going to end our sermon series this week by talking about hope. None of us had any idea how desperately we would need to hear a message about hope. We're in this series called Why. If God is good and God is powerful, why? Why does evil exist in the world? Why do innocent people suffer like they did this past Sunday night? If God is good and God is powerful, why are there so many times that our prayers go unanswered? Why is it often so difficult to break into the center of God's will? These the questions we've been wrestling with, and some of them are hard. But today, today we address the most important question, the most important why question that's out there. And it's this. Why the love of God will always prevail. Today is about hope. So I'm going to start... By talking about hope. Then we're going to transition to talk about hope. After that, we're going to sprinkle in just a little bit of hope. And at the end, we're going to bring it all back together by talking about what? Hope. <clears throat> so here we go. Hope number one. God is with us. Hope number one, God is with us. When Moses died, he, he was the greatest leader in the Old Testament. He fulfilled the prophecy, the, the offices of prophet and priest and king. He was the greatest leader in the Old Testament. And when Moses died, God anointed a young man by the name of Joshua. And four times in the first chapter of Joshua, God says, 
Be strong and courageous. And then God goes on to say, do not be afraid for the Lord your God is with you. When God's people were taken into captivity, we find in Isaiah chapter 41 that God says, do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not fear. The Lord your God walks with you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. The Bible talks about fear 500 times. 500 times. At the end of his life, King David had lived this long and glorious life. It wasn't without challenge and sin. He had challenge and sin in his life, but he lived this long life, a great life. And at the end of his life, as he was looking back, he was reflecting on the way that God had been his shepherd. And he writes the 23rd Psalm. In the midst of the 23rd Psalm, we hear this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is with me. Did you catch the common theme? In Joshua, in Isaiah, in Psalms. The Bible doesn't simply say, don't be afraid. The Bible says, don't be afraid, because God is with you. That's a good reason not to be afraid. I'm amazed at the way God gives me sermon illustrations every week. This past week, I could have done without it. But uh, God gave me the illustration on Tuesday night when my little girl woke up screaming in the middle of the night. She'd had a bad dream. She's three. And you know, when Parker wakes up with a bad dream, there's one thing that makes it better. It's when mommy or daddy comes into her room and holds her close and says, it's all right. I'm right here. And somehow, even though I can't fix all the evil in the world, somehow it's enough for her to know that her daddy's right there. And Parker's a lot smaller and I'm a lot bigger and stronger and I make more money than she does. But when I'm afraid, I just want the same thing she wants. I want my father to hold me close and tell me it's going to be okay, son. Because I'm right here. Hope number one, God is with us. Hope number two, God works through us. God works through us. So in Matthew chapter 25, we find the the last teaching of Jesus according to the gospel of Matthew, the last teaching of Jesus before he is arrested and uh, put on trial and convicted and sentenced to death in his resurrection. The, The last teaching that Jesus offers to the world according to the gospel of Matthew is called the parable of the sheep and the goats. And it goes like this. It says, When the Son of Man comes and all the holy angels with Him, He's going to divide the nations before Him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to place the sheep on His right hand, the goats on His left. He's going to turn to those on His right and He's going to say, Come, you, blessed of my Father, 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was sick, you came to me. I was in prison and you visited me. And those on his right, they're going to answer him and they're going to say, Lord, when? When were you hungry or thirsty or naked or a stranger or sick or in prison and we cared for you? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whenever you have done it to the least of my brothers and sisters, you have done it unto me. Enter into your rest. Then, he turns to those on his left and he says, Depart from me, you cursed of the devil, into everlasting fire. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was a stranger, you never took me in. I was sick, you didn't come to me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they're going to say, Lord, when? When did you inhabit these places and we didn't care for you? And Jesus is going to say to them, whenever you did not do it to the least of my brothers and my sisters, you did not do it unto me and my friends. The difference between the sheep and the goats is how they treated the least, the last, and the lost. And this parable makes us a little uncomfortable. Why? If you ask most people, most thinking Christians, why does the parable of the sheep and the goats make us a little uncomfortable? They will say this, because I would say it too. If we try to understand this parable in a vacuum without the context of Scripture, what we could tell ourselves is that our salvation is based on what we do. Paul disagrees with that idea. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 8-10, through 10, Paul says, It is by grace that we are saved through faith, not of we ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by our works, so none of us may boast. He goes on to say, For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do great things. What Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 is the how and the why of our salvation. How are we saved? By grace through faith alone. Why are we saved? To do great things. The parable of the sheep and the goat shouldn't cause us to be afraid. But often it does. Because I can find myself living my life in a vacuum where I'm thinking only about me. And Jesus says, if we have faith in our hearts, it will make its way to our hands. Do you believe that? If we have faith in our hearts, it will make its way to our hands. Do you believe that, church? I do too. Which means that this parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, it shouldn't inspire fear, it should inspire hope. We get to bring hope to the world because God works through us. God works through you and me. Let me give you an example. Jesus sets up six different criteria in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Let's let's score ourselves on them, shall we? I was hungry. You took almost 4,000 pounds of food up for serve last month. Good job, Ebenezer. I was thirsty last year. You built me wells in Africa. I was naked and every single year, every single year, you participated in angel tree to make sure I got new clothes. I was a stranger. You hired this lovely young lady. What? That's Chrissy Leathers. She's, yeah, she's awesome. She's out there right now. Look at me on the screen. Yay! 
see, Christy's our director of, of connections. Here's her job. When somebody walks in our church as a stranger, Christy's job is to help that person connect such that when they leave, they're a friend. I was a stranger, Jesus said, and, and you took me in. I was sick. And Ebenezer Church helped build Mercy Hospital. I was in prison, and you sent missionaries to me armed with thousands of cookies. My friends, it, it is not something to fear. It is a source of great hope. Not only does God live in us, God works through us to change this Hope number three. God, in time, will force evil to work for good. God, in time, will force evil to work for good. Every single uh, sermon in this series, I have referenced the story of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest of Jacob's, one of the youngest of Jacob's sons. He was sold by his brothers into slavery in an act that is so heinous I can, I can, can barely begin to understand it. Joseph went to live in the home of a man named Potiphar in Egypt, where he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. And when God got involved, when God gave Joseph a unique new ability, Joseph began to rise. And before long, he became the chief of staff to Pharaoh himself, second in charge of all Egypt. And then, a famine strikes Israel where his brothers live. And they have to come back down to their friends in Egypt and ask for some help. And, and who do they stand before to ask for grain? But Joseph, their brother that they'd sold into slavery. Mm. It's just so right. Joseph had an opportunity to take revenge. And eventually the brothers grow very fearful. They grow very fearful. And they, they kneel down before Joseph. And they say, please, please forgive us. And, and Joseph says, you have nothing to fear from me. And then he says, maybe the most important thing in the Old Testament, I don't know. He says, what you Intended for evil. God transformed into good. What you intended for evil, God transformed into good. I know this happens. I know it happens. I know it happens because my family lived it. I graduated from college in 2001 with a bachelor's degree in religion and philosophy and all kinds of questions about faith. So I wasn't ready to go to seminary yet. I thought about applying to law school. I'd have made a horrible attorney. I took something called the Air Force Officers Qualifying Test, but really I just was, I was working in Pigeon Forge for that summer. And that fall, September 11th happened. And on September 12th, I called my Air Force recruiter in Knoxville, Tennessee. I said, hey man, if you need me, I'll go. And I went. And along the way, I met this brilliant and beautiful woman at a charity social at Robbins Air Force Base. 
I'll never forget where I was the morning of September 11th. I'll never forget it. I was on the leg press machine at a gym in Pigeon Forge. It's exactly where I was. I'll never forget it. Single greatest tragedy of my lifetime. It's like people who lived through the, the President Kennedy assassination. You remember it. You'll always remember it. I'll always remember this. Exactly where I was when this tragedy struck. And it was. It was the greatest tragedy that happened in America in my lifetime. Just before the hour of 9 a.m. on September 11th, 2001, evil struck. And ten years to the day later, just before the hour of 9 a.m. on September 11th, 2011, my son Brock was born. And you could say, do you think, you think God allowed September 11th so you could have a son? No. I think what others intended for evil, God transformed into good. I think our God doesn't slumber. I think our God doesn't sleep. I think our God is always at work. Always at work. When those tragedies take place, our God is always at work to transform them into good. Romans chapter 8 says it this way. All things, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to His purpose. I love the way Frederick Buechner says it when he's talking about the resurrection. He says, for Christians, the worst thing is never the last thing. Why? Because what others intend for evil, God will transform into good. And that brings us to hope number four, which is our greatest hope of all. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, John the Revelator says this. He says he saw a vision of heaven and that there were There were twelve gates. And each of those gates was fashioned from one pearl. He said, the streets of heaven were paved in gold. It's a beautiful idea. I'd like to see a gate carved from one, one solid pearl. It's a beautiful idea. But, In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul approaches the idea of heaven differently. Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those of us who love Him. So John says, gates of pearl, streets of gold. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. Which one's right? Before we break out into a brawl here this morning over John versus Paul, let me say I think they're both right. See, here's what I think happened in Revelation 21. I think that, I think that John saw something that was so amazing, the prospect of putting it into human language, well, it was impossible. So instead, John takes a different tactic. In the ancient Near East, what do you imagine that most people would make gates out of? Wood, right? I mean, if I was going to make a gate today, I'd make it out of wood too. In the ancient Near East, what do you think most roads were made out of? I I would guess that most roads were made out of dirt. If you happen to be wealthy as a community, maybe you could make the, 
the roads out of stones. John looks and he sees this new heaven and this new earth. He sees the holy city. It is, it's filled with beauty. So profound he can, he can barely comprehend it. So what does he say? He says that the most valuable things we have on this earth, things like gold and pearls, that's what they make streets and gates out of in the next world. The most valuable things we have in this world, like wood and dirt in the world that is to come. It is so beautiful. I think the book of Revelation is a fascinating book and chapter 21 is a fascinating chapter. I love what Paul says about heaven, but my friends, the truth is that my favorite passage about heaven isn't in the Bible. It was written by a man named Clive Staples Lewis. He wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia, and if you've never read them to your children, I would encourage you to do so. Even if your children are 60 years old, call them on the phone, read these books to them, they'll love it. Narnia is a fictitious land, a land that's meant to mimic the salvation story of our God. And in the last book, called The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis paints a picture of what heaven looks like. I want to share it with you. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. So first thing, we know there are going to be unicorns in heaven. Let the church say amen. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground, neighed, and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Our God, our God has established a final hope, an unending hope for us, a hope that is beyond our human comprehension, a hope of a land that is so beautiful that the most beautiful things we have here look like wood and dirt, a land that is so remarkable that truthfully the only reason we love this world is because sometimes it looks like that. So why? Why why will the love of God always prevail? Because God is with us. Because God works through us. Because God doesn't slumber and God doesn't sleep. God is always at work to transform evil into good. And ultimately, the love of God will always prevail. Because God has given us the hope of a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Where no more crying, no more tears, no more mourning or pain. I have colleagues beat their pulpits to death. Talking about how people in America need to repent. Today I want to talk about how the church of Jesus Christ needs to repent. And here's why. 
Our society is struggling to find civility right now. We're deeply divided. We suffer these tragedies like we suffered last Sunday. And here's the thing that bothers me most. Is that sometimes the church of Jesus Christ will give itself over to despair. How dare we? We are a people of hope. We are a people of hope. Hope that God is with us and that God will work through us. That God's going to transform evil into good. And that one day, one day we will dance before the throne of the living God Himself. We are always a people of hope. And it doesn't matter what's happening out there. What our political philosophies happen to be. It doesn't matter how many tragedies occur. It doesn't matter because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing that can steal your hope from you. Adam Hamilton wrote this series originally. He talks about how how at this Easter service every year, people who are visitors and friends will walk up to him after the service and say, do you really believe that, that stuff you're talking about with the resurrection? And Adam Hamilton looks him dead in the eye. Every year he looks him dead in the eye and he says, I don't simply believe it. I am counting on it. We are a people of hope. We are people of hope. The hope that God is with us. The hope that God works through us. The hope that God will not leave evil alone, but will always transform it into good. And the hope that one day we will dance before the throne of God. We are a people of hope. So how do we know that the love of God will always prevail? We know because we've read the end of the story and love wins. We are always, always, always a people of hope.